Welcome to episode 139. Today, we'll visit with Fern Westenhoff, Stephanie Jones-Ville, and Paula Marcus. They're here to talk about their book called Powerful Practices for Supporting English Learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Let me briefly read the description of the book for you. Highlight the assets of English learners in your class. Students do better in school when their voices are heard. For English learners, that means not only supporting their growth language proficiency, but also empowering them to share their linguistic and cultural identities. In this book, we'll learn about the emotional, social, linguistic, cognitive, and academic rationale for incorporating cultural and linguistic assets. There's also creatively illustrated powerful practices with concrete examples of successful implementation. The authors will also bust some myths relating to English learners and help us think critically about diversity, inclusive education, and family engagement. Lastly, this book, because two of the authors are from Canada, really connect to Canadian and American education standards. Even though there are three authors in different locations, I hope you can find that their single message in this podcast is that we can focus on students' assets. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited and honored to host the three authors of Powerful Practices for Supporting English Learners, Elevating Diverse Assets and Identities. Welcome Fern, Stephanie, and Paula to the podcast. To start us off, would you give us a 30-second view of where you are right now in your context of work? So um, my name is Fern Westernoff. I'm a speech-language pathologist in the Toronto District School Board, uh, semi-retired and uh, enjoying everything. Thank you for having us. I'm Stephanie jones Foe, and I also am retired from the K-12 um, circuit. However, I continue to do large-scale professional development here in Georgia, where I uh, now live in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And hi, I'm Paula Marcus. Um, I uh, retired four years ago from my position as ESL coordinator with the Toronto District School Board. However, I do have another job now. Um, I'm an instructor in the Masters of Teaching program at OISE, which is the School of Education at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I participate in preparing pre-service teachers to work in the classroom. And specifically, I help them to develop their skills in supporting English language learners. And I still, uh, I also do professional development and writing. 
And uh, I still work in schools doing uh, assessments of newly arrived students. And I just want to say that we had our first uh, refugee from Ukraine this past week. Oh, wow. Uh, for listeners, we're recording this uh, on March 12th. And so we're our hearts are right now currently with the people of Ukraine. And so it's so great to see that. So thank you, Paula. It's so great to see that all three of you have are currently still in schools in some capacity, but you came from schools and you're not just uh, at the ivory tower. And I love the scholars and experts that come on. I also have a special place in my heart for teachers who are staying who are experts and they remain in the classroom where there are lots of stories. Let's start with that. Can you tell us a story from uh, your teaching experience that has really informed your practice? Okay, I'm going to start. Um, and I wanna share a story, something that happened to me. Uh, it's probably about a dozen years ago now. Um, as part of my work uh, as the ESL coordinator, um, it was more than just teaching, you know, we were involved in a lot of settlement issues and settlement work. And uh, I was invited to a meeting with some uh, government settlement people to talk about a strategy because the government was launch launching something called GARS, Government Assisted Refugee Settlement. And we had refugees coming in from another, uh, a number of different countries. And when I got to the meeting, um, it became clear that one of the countries where refugees were going to be sponsored from by the Canadian government was Uzbekistan. And um, I, I'm going to try not to get emotional when I talk about this, but uh, my father was a Holocaust survivor who uh, actually uh, grew up around Lviv in the Ukraine, which we're all watching now quite closely. Uh, as the war there continues. And my father ran away from the Ukraine and ran all the way across Soviet Asia and ended up in Uzbekistan. And he always used to tell me when I was growing up how wonderful the people of Uzbekistan were to him when he was a refugee there and how if he hadn't been able to go there, he probably wouldn't have survived and wouldn't have been able to start a new life in Canada. And I was sitting there in this room feeling this like humility and this opportunity of everything that had happened to my family and my dad and his life and being able to pay it forward in a full circle with refugees from Uzbekistan coming to Toronto and me being able to assist them in some way. Uh, that was just one of the high points of my career. And it informs my practice every day when I think about um, the opportunity that I have, thanks to other people in the world, I am where I am, and that I can pay that forward, that just really energizes and motivates me to keep on doing what I'm doing. Uh, Paula, you don't have to fight back tears because I'm getting teary as just hearing you say that. Because I also often when I present, I always say to teachers at the end of my webinars, I always say, I want you to let you know that because of teachers like you, you make refugee students like me feel welcomed. And that's what exactly what you do. And so, thank you. Well, my story takes place uh, early in my career. Um, I was working at a school who had a lot of concerns about a little boy, a four-year-old. And the parents were also quite concerned, uh, but more so about the school's perception of their precious little boy. 
And they allowed me, they trusted me enough to let me work with their son. I'm always so deeply honored when families allow me to work with their child because I'm the person who's supposed to find the problem. And, and that gives me the potential to break a parent's heart. Um, and so I'm always mindful of that and very cautious and honest um, in my dealing with families. But this little boy did have a number of challenges, but he was pure delight. I so enjoyed working with him. And when the parents came to in to get the feedback, everybody's busy taking off their winter coats and drinking their coffees and getting organized. And while we were doing all that and just having some little chit chat, I said to them, wow, what a great kid you have. I really enjoyed working with him. And I didn't realize the impact of those words. The father said to me, this is the first time anybody at the school has ever said something nice about my child. And I didn't realize it then, but it was the beginning of changing my practice to a more asset-based perspective. Um, uh, but I, I didn't realize the impact that that had on the rest of my career until, you know, that whole term asset-based perspective came into uh, our consciousness, and we made a, a, an effort to include that kind of focus in the book to look at children from a holistic perspective. And they might have some challenges, but they also bring great delight and joy. And um, and we need to be mindful that they're whole beings with with assets and identities that um, that need to be honored and cherished. So I thank that father for saying that to me. Fern, you you brought up you brought up a really great point of saying um, they're whole beings; they don't need to be fixed. And the way the language in which we use is the reality in which students live up to. And so, thank you for talking about like let's use assets-based language around students. Stephanie, and I have a bit of a different trajectory to get in the field as well. Um, I didn't start off as an ESOL teacher. Um, I started off as a French teacher, but I got into the education of language learners through the refugee sponsorship door. Paula, like you, we are all deeply rooted emotionally in this uh, endeavor. And um, so I would like to just uh, share that it was in the 70s when there was a diaspora from Southeast Asia. The boat people were escaping. The Hmong, the uh, the Thai Dom were an entire nation who wanted to be resettled all together, and no one in the world would respond until um, a governor, a four-term four-term Republican governor in Iowa, Robert D. Ray, which was um, where I was born and grew up and lived for sixty plus years. He stepped forth and partnered with, at that time, um, it was at the Geneva Convention when he had a proposal that was brought forth by Walter Mondale, um, which was Iowa, Iowa as a state will step up and take the entire community of Taidam. At that time, there were rules that wouldn't allow an entire community. I mean, there were a thousand people or more. 
Um, but they said, well, why not? And so the people of Iowa became ambassadors of individual church and other types of sponsorship. We met Southeast Asians when we, none of us had ever probably encountered one before. <laughs> but through that sponsorship, and I did become a sponsor to uh, a number of people and families with my children, I learned about advocacy. I learned about what you need to have in place before the learning can even start. And um, when the three of us have met over several, well, I don't know, many years now, we found kindred spirits and we found um, we're somewhere well over a hundred years of combined experience. And we thought the different perspectives may give some, like you, uh, non-ivory tower kind of uh, heft to what we have to say. So just listening to all your conversations, it just seems like we are not, we don't join a profession, we're called to this profession to serve from our hearts. That's why your, your book is, uh, is another way of calling to other teachers' hearts, so thank you. Let's talk about your book. What is the seed for this book? Every book has a seed, and what was the seed for this book? There are a lot of components in this book. I think there are three main, um, three main thrusts. Um, as Stephanie mentioned, we do come from different professions uh, and from different places, uh, Canada, in Canada and the US. And so um, we see this book as being a transnational, um, asset-based and interprofessional initiative that combines our, well, as Stephanie said, well over a hundred years of experience um, based on re not only the research, but also uh, the application of that research in ways that make sense, that have been proven, that have been enacted, and allows the reader to make it their own, because we know that one size does not fit all. So we ask readers to engage with the examples and to figure out ways that they can do something like that or let that inspire them for their particular context. So Amer Americans listen to this podcast the most, but after that, it's our lovely Canadians. And I have been so honored to work with so many Canadian school districts. And it's so great to see uh, the Maple Leaf teachers from the North. Let's talk about chapter one. It's about schools and community. Can you each talk about one way the schools can provide a welcoming environment for all students, families, and the local community? Okay, I'll start, Tan, thank you. Um, one of the things that we included in the chapter about schools is uh, something that uh, may be new, especially for teachers in the United States, and that's the initiative called the Language Friendly School. Um, and it was just starting at the time, the, the whole initiative was coming out and getting more um, publicity right around the time when we started writing the book. So the Language Friendly Schools initiative that started in the Netherlands, um, and it was started by two uh, educators slash academics, um, Emmanuel Pichon Wurstman and Ellen Rose Campbell. And um, they started this it, it's like a roadmap and it's like 
you you can join and you know your school takes a pledge to become a language friendly school and you pledge to uh, follow all the signs on the roadmap. And so the, the roadmap has, you have to commit, if you're gonna take this pledge, a small list of don'ts that uh, a language friendly school shouldn't do. Like we will not punish our students for speaking in their home languages. We will not advise parents uh, to not speak their home languages at home with their children. Um, we will not uh, support exclusion or bullying around the use of home languages or people using different dialects or accents. So those are some of the don'ts. And then there's a much larger section of do's, um, which you, you promise to uphold. Things like um, that your school promises to make a plan of how it will be language friendly and to regularly evaluate that plan, to make a school inventory of all the home languages that exist in the school. Like we've got to know all the riches that we're dealing with here. Um, to facilitate in every way possible multilingual communication with parents and the community, to run language clubs and encourage students to become more uh, conversant in their first languages and in each other's languages, and to make room for home languages in every part of the learning process, both in the classroom and the school. So um, we were pleased to be able to include the language-friendly school paradigm in the book. We think it's the first time that it's been showcased in um, a North American teacher resource publication. And we, we hope that readers are going to feel prompted to learn more about it. I think the most important, if there is one thing, if I had a magic teacher wand and then I would just wave this Harry Potter wand and all schools would do this, it would be to not to have a to have a language friendly policy where schools where there's no longer linguistic imperialism anymore. And so I wish that all teachers uh, adopt your language friendly policies as well. So to that end, um, we've included a model of professional development for teachers and staff, entire staff, including lunchroom personnel and um, everyone at the school. In fact, it includes the community and community members. These are all not things that we thought, oh, that would be nice. These are things from our practice that have been now uh, chronicled. If they did work, what made them work? And if they didn't, you know, there, there's evidence of some, some uh, reparation. But the four tiers include the first one, the grounding, which is nothing's going to work if everybody does not have empathy for our students. If they don't know where they came from or what the language is or you know, background information. And so the professional development in the one I'm referring to in particular was over two years was grounded in a good long extended over a semester devoted to building empathy. And the figure 1.9, in fact, it's on page 31, two and three, gives ideas to folks. It tells what is tier one in terms of empathy, what are desired outcomes, and gives at least 10 or 12 ideas um, that actually were implemented. So, you can pick and choose from ideas to get going or make up your own, but we do feel that the empathy piece is critical for 
um, for establishing any instructional piece <laughs> um, moving forward. So there are three more tiers, which we won't go into, but we thought instructionally, it could be helpful, particularly now that once again, uh, we have, we're, we're getting so many more refugees right now. Um, and, and people perhaps who haven't um, met and uh, loved the refugees that, that, that have come into their schools or communities um, do benefit from, from knowing more. And emphasizing that this is not a one way, oh, this is what they might be like, but it's also what are you like? It's a mutual acculturation, in fact. And so we think that that makes it um, relevant. And we always, we have so many templates and examples and anecdotes and scenarios. Um, again, that's figure 1.9. <laughs> And there are many more figures after that. Fern, do you want to add? I'd love to. Thank you. Um, another aspect or another powerful practice that we highlight in Chapter 1 is to ensure that student identities are well represented throughout the building, throughout the school, um, outside of the building as well. So we talk about um, include making sure that books that uh, represent the population are included including dual language books, um, using images that represent diversity. And we've highlighted the Diverse Achievers posters as an example of that. So these are posters that uh, highlight the achievement of various uh, people in different professions. So in education or in aeronautics, for example. Um, so those can be used in schools as well. And then also making sure that the signage around the school, outside the school, is available to the community, to the families who can speak other languages. So just a few more powerful practices. Right. And it's really simple. I, was, I remember going to British Columbia, to Abbotsford, and in the parking lot, I pulled up and I saw a parking sign. And it was in English, French, and Punjabi. I was like, Punjabi? That is so cool. And just imagine if I was a, from a, a Punjabi speaking family, I would feel already, even before I step into the school, that I'm already welcomed. And this the small little things that we can do. Let's talk about chapter two. What are something we can do in the classroom to make instruction more meaningful for our multilingual students? We can make sure that there's a very good match between the instructional input and the students language ability, interests, background, culture. We need to help those things to meld together. And if there is a good match, we're gonna get some traction and there's going to be forward um, movement. To that end, we've offered on page 90 and 91, um, it is the instructional reading inventory. We find that we have students who are plunked down in a grade level and um, they're expected to begin to learn to read in English, by the way, um, along with their grade level peers who've had countless years, even if they're in kindergarten, they've had countless years of reading, pre-reading development. And so this is some questions for teachers, maybe teachers who are not ESL, ESL teachers, in fact, 
um, to ask, including what language does my student speak? What are some similarities to English? What might be some differences? Uh, is the language, does it use the Latin script? And if not, can the student um, form the letters in, in English? Uh, and if not, who has the responsibility? Does someone have the responsibility uh, to teach that? Now, I know that these kinds of questions may not come up um, in the Toronto District School Board, um, which is, if, if I may say, ladies, the, the largest ESL program in the world. I'm correct in that, aren't I? Was quite large, let us say that, Paula, thank you. She's always very modest. <laughs> But I will say that in the U.S. we have a lot of uh, small towns that are still receiving for the first time their English learners. And so these kinds of questions aren't given. They're, I mean, they aren't um, necessary. It's, it's uh, groundbreaking if, if we can get all the teachers to understand that. And that's why professional development shared with the same information for all of our teachers and staff um, is essential to make it a welcoming environment and to make students able to engage. So another strategy or powerful practice that we highlight in that chapter is the use of a translanguaging pedagogy. And so translanguaging is the use of the home language strategically in the classroom. Um, it's supposed to follow the way uh, multilingual uh, speakers use language. And so um, it provides a very powerful uh, support for learning English. Um, and so examples of that include reading dual language books in the classroom or allowing students to discuss certain concepts or ideas in their home language before reporting back in English and including uh, home languages and written assignments as well. In, the, in that section, um, in that chapter rather, we also have a whole section about how teachers and educators can uh, get across the concept that it's important to continue to develop the home language and to respect and enjoy and uh, just gain from all languages. So we have a lot of different strategies that we encourage teachers and educators to consider. Um, and just one that I'm briefly going to talk about is integrating stories about migration and the advantages of maintaining the home language in your classroom program at any grade level. And I just brought a few uh, books from my collection just to show you. Uh, you might be familiar with this book. This is a classic, The Name Jar, where this young Korean girl comes to a school and um, she goes through a period of wondering what her name is going to be. And then she realizes, why can't I? They're, my Korean name is wonderful and I want to continue to use that. So it's a very beautiful book. It's a classic. It's not a brand new book, but um, it's very easily obtainable. Then uh, we've got for middle school, and um, this is called The Distance Between Us, okay? This is a wonderful uh, middle grade memoir written by um, a writer, her name is Raina Grande, and she arrived in the United States from Mexico as an undocumented um, 
refugee from a difficult life in Mexico. And she talks a lot about what learning is like and the process of becoming bilingual and how she wants to be a writer and some of the obstacles that the school system put in her pathway uh, as a learner of English. So this is another one. Um, This book is also, it's interestingly enough, used for, um, I've seen it used for parent clubs in the U.S., in schools that have a large uh, Spanish-speaking population, the parents are reading this because it really gives them a window into the situation. And then um, I'm going to put in a plug for a Canadian book here. Uh, this book is called We Have Always Been Here by Samra Habib. Um, this book came out last year, I believe, and it won uh, what we call the Canada Reads Competition, which, which is a big um radio program uh, put on by the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. One book that brings all Canadians together, and this is the book. And this book is, again, a memoir uh, written by a Muslim immigrant from Pakistan who came to Canada. And she also uh, is um, lesbian. And that's not something that in her culture uh, people talked about a lot. And so she had a lot of um, obstacles to overcome, both integrating into Canadian society and then living her authentic life. And she again talks about the switching back and forth between languages and how pleased she is to be able to do be able to do everything that we're doing in English. I highly recommend this book. It's a great read. Those are free that I can share. Thank you for that. It's all about, uh, I think the second book you talked about is about, all three really is about empathy. And that goes back to what Stephanie was talking about in the beginning when we were at that 1.9 feature you have that when we are more empathetic and when we we see students for who they are, we can actually teach in a more effective way. And it's not that separation, that divide between like curriculum and students. It's like students and curriculum, not not, not this divide. Can we go back to a little bit talking about, so you all three talked about um, home languages. So when there are, when there's a, pu- when there's pushback against that, when colleagues say, wait, they come to school, we're an English speaking country, we're at an international school and, they, and the, the language of instruction is English. Why are we supporting kids to use other languages besides English? What would you say to that? That's a question I face on a daily basis, particularly around students who have exceptional needs. Um, And so I I do talk about the research uh, and the research shows that children who have strong oral language skills in their home language are better equipped to learn English. That does not make sense to a lot of people, but that's what the research is showing. So we talk about that. We want the home language to be as strong as possible in order to support adding on English. Not only that, but strong oral language skills in any language supports learning to read and write. And that's what teachers are very concerned about, learning to read and write. Um, So it, it is something that we face on a daily basis, helping parents and teachers understand the importance of the home language. And then I often say, but now I'm going to teach you the trick about that. You want to talk about the same thing that the teacher is going to talk about in school, because we know that information transfers from one language language to another. 
And we know that if they understand what a giraffe is, for example, then it will take them, they don't have to learn that content. They just need to learn the term for giraffe. Um, and so that makes learning more efficient. So we talk about ways to use dual language books or background experience to prepare the child, to prime the child for what the teacher is going to be learning. So this has the effect of building the home language skills uh, and supporting English language development and supporting learning to read and write. It's, a, it's what I call the win-win-win situation. Yeah, uh, I think you talked about, you touched on the topic of like partnering with parents, right? bringing them in as well. Partnering with parents and the community is actually part of the four-tiered professional development model because we have to get all stakeholders knowing each other and caring about each other, understanding the background or, or you know, participating. You know, there was an, a wonderful example of, of when this actually happened and very quickly, I'll tell you what it was. I mean, there were many, we have so many examples, we can't help ourselves. But um, in a high school setting, this was at the time um, when I was a high school teacher, um, there were refugees coming into Iowa because of the governor I mentioned at the very outset. And there was a shortage of, of uh, sponsorship. And so we came up with the idea, what if the entire school through the student council were able to sponsor a family? And um, long story short, that is exactly what happened through the student council, which voted and everyone had a representative on this body of folks who cared and knew what they were doing in terms of securing a housing situation and picking people up at the airport, taking people to the doctor, filling out, you know, applications for what everything. Um, there were roles, there were there were people to coordinate and get their group of, of friends and colleagues to participate. So it was from the parents to the teachers to the students themselves. It was a wonderful way of bringing not only the EL parents in, but gosh, they were there at the airport to meet them. And so parents to parents, here you are. And you've got built-in mentors and, and, and folks you can go to, or they can connect you with community members who can. So in Iowa, that was a, a kind of a new thing. I will defer to Paula because Paula is a very, very experienced mentor in every way. And sponsorship in Canada is second to none at this time. Canada leads the world in resettling refugees. Um, it was in 2017 when the Iowa Bureau of Refugee Services closed that Iowa, uh, actually the United States lost the title, title, lost the privilege of resettling more refugees than all of the other countries in the world combined. Um, well, you know, um, it, it, is, it looks like a lot of other countries are going to be stepping up to the plate in terms of refugee resettlement. Starting from now on, we're going to see European countries, which already, I mean, when you think of it, um, Germany has absorbed something like a million and a half refugees from Syria, something a million, I, I can't remember the number, but um, 
So I think we are going to see um, more countries stepping up to do their share. But I wanted to talk for just a minute about uh, partnering with parents on creating materials and on uh, celebrating and maintaining the home languages. And I just wanna show a couple of examples from work that uh, was done in some of our schools here in Toronto. Now, some of our readers may not be familiar with Terry Fox. Of course, Stephanie knows who Terry Fox is, I think, because she's been to Canada so many times. Uh, Tan, are you familiar with Terry Fox? Do you know who he is? Yeah, in the international school, they often have like the Terry Fox run. Exactly. Okay. So for the benefit of people who uh, aren't familiar with Terry Fox, Terry Fox was a young man who, uh, I believe it was in 1979, he was about 21 or 22 years old, and he was an Olympic hopeful athlete. He developed cancer, bone cancer, and had a limb amputated, but he wasn't going to let that stop him from being an athlete. And he decided that he was going to run from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast in Canada to raise money for cancer. And I want to say this happened in 1980. I wasn't living in Canada at that time, so I'm a little bit foggy on the details, but I think it was 1980. And um, so Terry Fox started running and he ran uh, probably a couple of thousand miles. And very sadly, his cancer came back when he was partway through the cross country run. And um, within maybe six months of that, he passed away. Um, but the Terry Fox run has become a huge um, cancer awareness and funder. It's raised something like half a billion dollars since its inception. It's huge. And there are schools all over the country named after Terry Fox. So Terry Fox, back to Terry Fox. Um, this is a book that was done by students at one of our schools in a very a multilingual uh, community. And it's all about Terry Fox and it's in French, English, Tamil and Vietnamese. Those are the four languages that were prevalent at the time. Oh, and, so, oh, ne and, and Nepali also. So I'll just show you some of the different pages where you can see um, the different entries in different languages. And I'll show you the Nepali because that's kind of, and here it is as well. And so, you know, the families were intimately involved in doing the translations and putting this book together. And these kind of book co-creation projects together with families in the community are just such powerful ways, not only to establish links with families, but also to convey the message that their languages should receive equal billing with English and we want their children to feel equally proud and ready to use and speak their home languages at any time. This is just another one I wanna show you. This is uh, one of our teachers. Um, and she, uh, this, this is uh, Yasmin, the teacher. I, I wanna show her picture because she's just so amazing. And uh, every year she does a multilingual book project with her students and their families. So this was uh, fables that they did and they, the kids did plasticine models. And then they, together with their families did translations of the different fables. So I'm showing you one, I believe in Bengali right now, because that's a major language in that particular school community. So, um, 
you know, the power of these kinds of um, community efforts really can't be overestimated. And you can even do it in kindergarten. And we speak in the book about a kindergarten teacher in Peel, which is the next municipality to the west of Toronto. And Tan, you probably know that area. It's a municipality of probably almost a million people. And um, one of the kindergarten teachers there, her name is Laurel Fines. She works in a very, very um, multicultural, multilingual school community. And she got her kindergarten parents to participate in this thing called Hello Goodbye, where um, a letter was sent home and everybody was asked, you know, how do you say hello and goodbye in your language? Can you please write it down? And we know that your children know how to say this. And we're going to make a little video of all of the kids. And so they did a video of each one of the kindergarten students saying hello and goodbye in their different languages, along with some of the other teachers and posted that up on Twitter. And um, so it, starting from kindergarten, you can involve families in these kinds of co-creation projects in different languages. Thank you for sharing that, Paula. Those, those, uh, those books, with multiple languages. I just felt like uh, I could just see the parents feeling so welcomed, but affirmed. And then I can see all the all the interaction that the students are having with uh, their parents, but also the classmates and the teachers. And so that's just wonderful. Uh, Fern and Stephanie, do you want to add anything on how else uh, we can support families adjusting to a new community? I think one of the things that has become prevalent in my practice is um, working with parents to let them know that they don't have to choose between English and the home language. They can have both. Um, and it does take a little bit of work, but just because they, they want their child to succeed so much and, and they're willing to do it, they're willing to do it at the, at the risk of sacrificing the home language. But sometimes they don't realize that that has huge consequences not only for that child not being able to participate in home life and interacting with uh, their extended family, maybe even in interacting with their parent. Um, if a parent doesn't speak much English, there always needs to be a shared uh, language where a parent can fully parent um, their child and be able to read between the lines of what the child is saying or not saying. Um, and to build to make sure that 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 bond is very strong. So um, that's that language planning is something that um, I do a lot of with families to support their wish to have a multilingual, multiliterate, multicultural child. Right. I think the center of relationship is language, and when we don't have language, our relationships really struggle and and lack. Let's move to chapter four, which is about students. Can you share ways to maintain high levels of engagement with multilingual students and who have exceptional needs as well? Um, I'll talk a little bit about students with exceptional needs because there is the perception out there that if a child has exceptional learning needs or a language impairment or a speech impairment, that that child would be best be served in English only. But again, the research does not support that, okay? The research does not support that um, English only is best for children whose world really encompasses more than one language. And so as 
uh, a speech language pathologist, I do not do anything that is going to create or augment a situation uh, whereby a child will not be able to talk to their family. Um, and so uh, even if I don't speak the language, I will incorporate the home language into my practices. So uh, if a child has a visual board or visual schedule, we can do that visual schedule in English and the home language. Um, and that becomes good practice to include parents in some therapies and a new way of communicating with their child. But also we can work it into the classroom. So we're building on all those language skills. The research does not support uh, an English only focus for children whose world is multilingual. They're not gonna get better in English if you don't include their home language. They just will end up not being able to talk to a parent. So that's a difficult conversation to have with people because not only is it going against what they think intuitively, but it also goes against what parents might have been told by experts. And so very often a parent will say to me, yeah, but my doctor said I should go home and speak only English. And so we have to start to unpack that and help parents become advocates when they are faced with experts and specialists who present a different point of view. They need to be able to say, no, the research says otherwise. And no, it's important for my child to maintain the home language. Because then it maintains my connection with them and their culture. Mm -hmm. I think um, I've see, I see this in international schools so often that parents will, with the intention of having their kids be prepared for school, they'll start not speaking their community or heritage language at home. So this kid will go all the way and graduate in 12th grade and will not actually, though live in Thailand, actually can't speak Thai at an academic level or read Thai at an academic level. It's just, oh, I can use my Thai for errands and transactions on the streets. But there's no like, but they say, I prefer to use English because I, that's my dominant language. And I'm like, ah, oh, but you live in Thailand. Look at this, look at the loss that you now have because of because of focusing on just English. I think it's, you, you don't have to learn another language at the expense of the one you already have. Uh, okay, um, I'm going to talk about uh, another group of students with uh, special needs, a group that I've worked with a lot over the years, and those are students with uh, limited or interrupted formal schooling. We do have a very large program in Toronto. We call it LEAP, Literacy Enrichment Academic Program. Um, we have it, um, well, you know, I can't say exactly because I'm not the coordinator anymore, but probably in about 18 to 20 high schools and 20 plus uh, elementary schools, mostly starting from grade six, but uh, a few classes in grade four and five. So we have kids coming to us from around the world who haven't had the opportunity for a whole host of reasons that are completely beyond their control to go to school regularly. And sometimes some of those kids have never been to school at all. Um, 30 years ago, when, when I was in the early part of my career teaching, I was working with a lot of kids from Somalia 
and particularly the girls, you know, they would come to our high school. There was a large Somali community in the area, and some of them had never been to school at all, and they were 14, 15, and 16 years old. So, um, uh, and there's always another, you know, depending on what's going on in the world, there's always another group coming that's been living through very difficult times, including um, closure of schools or like in Syria, some of the kids weren't able to be in school for three or four years. So um, we put a lot of energy and a lot of resources into our program for students with um, limited interrupted schooling. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are really important that, you know, you kind of take it for granted when you're working with kids who have age uh, appropriate literacy skills and you have experience being in a school environment. But, you know, when you're dealing with a 12 and 13 year old who maybe has never been to school before, you really have to take a different approach in terms of helping them what we call learn to do school. You know, all the things that we take for granted around absences and, you know, keeping an agenda and managing your time to do homework and classroom routines and procedures, and even something as basic as knowing when it's an appropriate time to ask to go to the washroom. These are all things that are, you know, the, these young people have not had the opportunity to experience it in a way that uh, children born in Canada or, or the U.S., we kind of absorb all of that through our pores, right? We know how we know how to behave in circle time and group work and in gym class. And so we have to do a lot of um, recycling and modeling for our kids on how to do school. And that's something, you know, that's a process that can take years. We, we really put a lot of focus on that. And we also put a lot of focus on, again, um, co-creating texts with the kids so that they can feel that their identities are represented in the products. And I have a few books here. I'm always, I always like to show the things the kids do. This is a series of books that uh, Ergo put together um, and it's called Making Good Choices. And all of these books were written by kids who have gaps in their formal schooling. And they all deal, all the books deal with issues of financial literacy. So uh, this one is about some kids coming to Canada and where they come from, there was no tax. And so when they went to check out, they didn't realize there was going to be more money added on top of it. So that one, that's we pay the tax. Uh, she's learning about saving and the bank. This guy, um, some of his library books that he borrowed got kicked under the bed and now he has to pay the fine. And there's a whole math lesson in it because you know it's 20 cents a day and they, they have to do some different calculations. Interestingly enough, um, the library board here in Toronto just a month or so ago uh, and kind of spurred by the pandemic has voted to abolish fines for late books. So I think that's kind of cool. And, and then this is another one, opening a bank account. And so all of the, you know, the students that you see on these book covers are students who have had gaps in their prior schooling, but you know what? They can be authors. 
and they can write books. And these books are, you can go to the website of ERGO, the ESLELT Resource Group of Ontario. Anybody in the world can download for free and print all of these books and three-part literacy lessons and three-part mathematics lessons. It's all freely available resources for uh, that we can share. Oh, so those wow. are just the, yeah. So yeah, it's ergo, E-R-G-O hyphen O-N dot C-A. That's the web address. And uh, all of this, like I, uh, there's 20 or 21 different books right. and uh, anybody can use them with their classes. Right. They can be uh, like text that you can read, but they also can be inspiration for teachers to say, we're going to create our own text for our own community as well. Right? And, I, and it goes back to a firm idea of like, let's use different languages to create them as well. And I, again, it goes back to the assets-based perspective of saying, okay, you might not uh, have formal education for the last 16 years, but that doesn't mean you can't be authors. Let's do it together. Exactly. I will say that that amazing LEAP program at, in, in Toronto was one of the first things that drew me to Paula because of the fact that so many students were having such tremendous success and graduating with a certificate of um, real merit. And it gave them a pathway forward rather than, well, other pathways that we're all aware of that we don't need to mention. But, um, it's a fantastic program and I learned so much from her and I became a cheerleader and a public relations individual in every school that I went to in Iowa that you can create a program for your SLIFE students to be successful and actually learn meaningful content that is in fact, very, we're very hung up here about being tied to the curriculum <laughs> and the standards and what have you. Yes, you can. That's, that's, that's just a fact. It can be designed and it's masterful. And um, I'm still in awe and amazement of the Toronto District School Board. And they're so generous in posting many, many resources, such as Paula just shared, that... Um, are many contained in the book. Every, every chapter has resources that are in list form or websites and um, people who are interested can certainly find them. I'm, if you don't mind, I'd like to show the book, may I? Um, so um, I, prefer, I really like the subtitle more than the title. Uh, the subtitle is Elevating Diverse Assets and Identities. Elevating, and these are the umbrellas going up that, uh, Fern, thank you for finding um, so many beautiful shades of umbrellas in an upwardly direction. But we thought that really is optimistic as are all of us. Uh, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this work together, right? And I mean, everyone, uh, Tan, I mean you as well. <laughs> um, it's cheerful, it's a cheerful cover because it doesn't have to be drudgery. It's joyful work. Um, but, uh, yes, kudos to the LEAP program for SLIFE students. So let's end the podcast with this. We are, we have more than a hundred years of experience here with just the three of you, like the, the depth of your professionalism and your knowledge with students and teachers is so impressive that we have to tap into that. What is the main thing that you would like teachers to realize after listening to this podcast and reading your book? 
Um, I want to say that um, Paula, Stephanie, and I have spent many, many hours working together um, virtually, mostly. Um, and I, the one thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again in our stories, in our discussions, is how much this work has enriched our lives. And now I'm going to get a little weepy. It's really been a joy to work with families who put their trust in you, and you also need to rise to the occasion. So we think we're in a giving profession, but we are in a receiving profession. We get so much out of this work, and we hope that the teachers who are in this, this area of uh, education and who use our book, read our book, are inspired by the book, also receive as much as we have. That's very beautiful, Fern. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I just want to add, um, if I was going to say one thing to a new teacher who's working with uh, newcomer students, uh, I think it would be do everything you can to get to know that student in all their uniqueness and all their individuality, because that more than anything else is going to not only inform everything that you do to support that student, but also, and it kind of goes back to what you've been saying, Fern, um, seeing the, the, the different backgrounds, the different languages, the different stories, the different talents, the, the different amazing contributions of every single one of our students enriches us, uh, as you were saying. So I, that I think that would be the one thing that I would say. The time that you invest and that you keep investing in getting to know your students um, will reap a thousandfold. So that, that would be the one thing I would advise people. And I would advise new teachers to enjoy the ride. Find out everything you can about the culture. Go to the places where people shop. Go to um, services. Go to uh, performances. Steep yourself in cultures and take other people along with you, whether it's students or faculty. Um, and you will have the time of your life and eat some wonderful food. And uh, that's, that just can't be underestimated. It's, it's a wonderful profession. It is what you make it. And so you have talked about uh, the, the profession enriches our lives. So your book is enriching our lives. So thank you again for giving us that opportunity to learn from you and to be with you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. 
So as I listened to the podcast again, as I was editing it, I realized that the main powerful practice that both Fern and Paula and Stephanie shared is that when we partner with students, their families, and their communities, that is the most powerful practice. When we do this, we sustain and maintain students' heritage languages, not just to transition them into English proficiency. The risk of losing our connections to our culture when our language is lost is so real in schools. So just like the authors recommended, let's adopt and continue to practice the translanguaging model. Additionally, I was so inspired by all the ways that the schools and the teachers were collaborating with parents and families in creating their own books in different languages. And in this way, we both welcome, we truly welcome and value the assets that families and communities bring to our schools. So again, the most powerful practice is to figure out how can we partner with students, families, and communities. We are not the only ones that want the best for our students. So let's partner with those who want it as well. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.